1: This day was invented during the second half of the 19th century with the emergence of popular culture and its exploitations by its retailers. It is a day that actually plays upon covetousness, a desire to have things. The commercial Christmas first transformed the giving of gifts into the expectation of receiving gifts and then into the demanding of gifts. It remains our our civilization's most important celebration of avarice, greed. While no one can object to the giving of gifts, it is difficult, he writes, to see how any Christian can enter into the spirit of Christmas commercial without defilement. He goes on to say there's a second Christmas called the cultural Christmas. This is the one of the red, days of red and green, holly and ivy, eggnog, caroling, tinseling, trees and lights and caroling, so on and so forth. As yule logs and candles and sleigh bells and reindeer, reindeers and Kris Kringle are part of this holiday. Some of the traditions of the cultural Christmas are ancient and possibly pagan in origin. Others are relatively recently, and some of these, like Rudolph, for instance, have come into the cultural holiday on loan from the commercial holiday, and this is what most people think of or know of as Christmas. But then he wrote of the third one, that's the Christian Christmas. In principle, we would be justified, he writes, in celebrating the incarnation every time we gather for worship. And in certain senses, that's exactly what we do. During the Christmas season, we simply direct our, our, our focus more specifically to the wonder of the incarnation, much as we do with Easter and the resurrection, though the resurrection is celebrated each Sunday. We set aside time to ponder this event with the deliberation. In principle, any season of the year could work for such a celebration of the incarnation, and late December is as good as any of the other. He goes on to write that done properly, a celebration of the Incarnation can be a wonderful season of contemplation, instruction, reflection, and devotion. There is, or he says, this is is the point, however, at which the cultural uh, Christmas becomes a danger. An overemphasis upon the cultural Christmas will distract most people from the Christian Christmas. They will be thinking about reindeer when they ought to be pondering God in their flesh. Their minds will be focused on Christmas cards and cookies when they should be focused upon Christ's condescension. So today on the morning eve of Christmas, I believe it's important to remind ourselves of the importance of the incarnation. God himself taking on human flesh to become our substitute sacrifice. In doing so, he bears the wrath of God by taking on himself the penalty that was rightly due to you and I for our sin and rebellion. In addition, God exchanges Jesus' perfect obedience for our rebellion and he adopts us as his own children. This enables us to be accepted by God and he grants to us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Until that day that Christ returns. This truth was prophesied by Isaiah centuries before Christ came. And it gives us a wonderful word picture of what to expect. You'll see here on the monitor, Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 7. Where the prophet says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this morning, Father, we come, and again, we thank you for this wonderful gift. It's a gift that continues to give each and every day as we live out the blessings and the benefits of salvation. Father, I pray that we would just take this moment to just clear our minds of any of the commercial or cultural Christmases that might be competing for our desire and for our attention. Let us take 40 minutes here and just dwell on you and the incarnation in which your word has to say. Renew our commitment. And Father, work in our hearts that there be no disruptions, that we may respond to your Spirit's work through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. You know, as you and I turned the last page of Exodus several weeks ago, we read that as Moses and the Israelites finished building the tabernacle, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What a wondrous, joyful moment that must have been for the children of Israel that had been enslaved by the Egyptians for over 400 years. Not only did Yahweh hear, see, remember, and love the Hebrew children by rescuing them from slavery, delivering them from the clutches of Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, providing water and food in the desert, by instituting a love covenant, by committing to be their God and them, his people, by keeping them safe from the enemies, but also providing land for their future generation to grow and prosper. God now comes to dwell among them restoring in some sense the fellowship that our first parents lost in the garden. However, Moses did record one sentence that we did not address that day. And at first glance, it can be overlooked, but deserves our attention. Immediately after recording that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses notes that he was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Why is this? As you and I have read in Exodus, Moses many times was able to come into the presence of God, but at this time he was not able to. When he found the burning bush that Yahweh spoke through, he was able to come into the presence of the glory of God. On the Mount Sinai, he was given a law, again, coming into the presence of God. And then in the previous temporary tent of meetings before the tabernacle, where God would instruct him, now, each time you and I, we must point out that, God, that Moses did not actually see God, but that he saw the glory of God. It was just a portion of God's glory. Scripture tells us that no man has ever seen God and that no man could stand in his presence because of the sin of what we read earlier in our catechism. Scripture tells us that holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Habakkuk says you, speaking of Yahweh, are of purer eyes than to see evil and you cannot look at wrong." Isaiah would say, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Just as the curse of sin and death brought the ejection of Adam and Eve from the garden, Moses' sin keeps him from entering into the presence of God. However, that was only temporary as we read in the book of Leviticus just a few chapters later. In the next book it says that the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Again, what a wonderful verse. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That verse demonstrates that even a man like Moses, a man who was a murderer, could approach and speak when Yahweh, when invited. Now God had spoke to men in the past through dreams and visions and angels, and even audibly, but never was man invited to approach God in such a way. As we learned in our study of Exodus, God made a way for man to worship and commune with God through his laws and rituals and sacrifices, inviting men and women to come into his presence. Yet all of this had a shortcoming. It was temporary. It was not permanent. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Here we read that even though the tabernacle was a special dwelling for the glory of God and the sacrifices accepted as atonement for the sins of the people, the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 1 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of a true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have been cleansed? It would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, it says in verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For centuries, Israel had performed these sacrifices to atone for sin. Never finding complete salvation. But only the restraining wrath of God until a final sacrifice could be made that would be accepted by God. Even then, Scripture teaches us that it was not the blood of bulls and goats that appeased God, but the heart. King David sings in his confession in Psalms 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, he sings, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. At the time of writing this song, David knew intimately from this experience. This truth comes from the painful reality of the death of David's son due to David's sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read of the consequences of David's sin in the conversation between him and the prophet Nathan. Look on the monitor. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, "This lo- or The Lord has put away your sin. What a glorious statement. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. this seems harsh to you and I, does it not? Why would God kill the son for the father's sin and disobedience? Well, this was actually related, reflected first in the covenant that you and I read in Exodus several weeks ago. Turn now once again, if you have your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 34. You might recall when we read that, we read of Yahweh's character first in verse 6 of chapter 34 of Exodus. As he's given them the law, God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousand forgiving iniquity and in transgression of sin this is god is revealing here a wonderful truth about his character god is merciful god is gracious god is forgiving yet as we continue he v- reveals this but who will know by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now let me ask you to the, to the young people here, to the children here today, is it fair for you to be punished for your dad's and, and mom's mistakes? Oh, it is? You don't like it when you get in trouble for your brother or sister's mistakes and sins. But we see here, yes, a God that is gracious and mercy, but he's also a God of justice who is holding many others to accountable for the sins of her own. Now, if you would turn to Jeremiah, and we're going to do some turning scriptures to Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles, and if you don't have one, please let us know. For in Jeremiah 31, you and I read that not only was the sacrificial system temporary, but it also was inadequate to deal with the issues of the heart. As we know, the Bible tells us that the heart is desperately wicked and that every inclination of man is to do evil. One of the motivations for man to quell the passions of his heart was to understand that his sin affected everyone around him, including his family for several generations. David learned that the hard way. This was harsh, but as you and I know, it was also an ineffective way to fight sin. God and his plan and purpose of salvation Promises in Jeremiah thirty-one. Look at verse twenty-seven. He says, "Behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord, "when I sold sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I watched over them to pluck them up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. You have seen that I have I have given them punishment, but yet, but I am also going to build them up." In verse 29, in those days, they shall no longer say, the father has eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Now that, that's an interesting, you know, uh, idiom there. What, what does it mean that the man will eat sour grapes but his kids' teeth are going to be edgy. Do you, do you understand that phrase? It's like when you eat something sour and your teeth get on edge or you get that sour type of uh, you know, thing in your mouth. Well, what he's saying here is, is there was a time in which the father's sin would go to the son. But God is saying that there will be a day in which the father's sin will not be visited on his children. Another one, each man will stand on his own. He's giving him a greater promise than that was found in the old covenant. Because go on to verse 31 of that chapter. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Look at verse 33. And you should probably have this underlined in your verse. It's a famous, uh, important passage in the progressive revelation of God. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those de- days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, even though he had given them the written law, given in stone then written, written on parchment and shared orally, it never was on their heart. So God had this kind of governing thing that says, listen, do not sin because your children to the fourth generation, your great-great-grandchildren can also suffer from the sins that you did. But you and I know today that that's not effective. You and I sin today knowing that our sin affects not, not just ourselves, but others. So God said, I'm going to make a better way. I'm going to make it so you are able to do what I've called you to do. And you see this new covenant that God promises finds its fulfillment in Matthew twenty six twenty six. as you look on the screen. As Jesus was with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, Jesus proclaimed, take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given things, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you and I, we usually consider this verse when we take communion, and on Easter, as we will tonight in communion. But this has wonderful implications for Christmas as well. What this verse is informing us is that you and I no longer need the body of bulls and goats to temporarily atone for our sins. For God is making a better, permanent way to deal with our sins. As our scripture reading earlier proclaimed, as Randy read, that if the blood and goats and the sprinklings of a defiled person's with the ashes of a heather, of a heifer, um, sanctified for the purification for the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify us? What does that have to do with Christmas? Well, the Incarnation, of course. Without the incarnation, there would be no crucifixion. There will be no resurrection. There will be no ascension. There would be no return of Christ. God, in his mercy, is restoring all of creation, including sinful, rebellious men and women. The tabernacle, the rituals, the law, the sacrifices were part of God's progressive plan of salvation. But now, in the fullness of time, he brings a better, permanent sacrifice. His son, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our main passage today of Hebrews chapter 10, 5 through 10. It's here on the monitor. You may have it in your scripture. Read silent with me as I read out loud. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrificings and offerings you have not desired. But look at this next line. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, Jesus, or he's speaking to God. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. In verse 8, when he had said above, you should have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, a body you have prepared for me. Why the incarnation? Because it was necessary for something, someone better than bulls and goats to pay for the sins of men and women. Hebrews 9.22 informs us that without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In Genesis Nexus, we read that God accepts a substitute for our sin. First, it was a ram for Isaac, and then it was bulls and goats and doves and other animals for the Israelites. But as we've spoken earlier, it was not sufficient. In Jesus, through the incarnation, we see and find God's permanent solution. Now this is essentially the wondrous miracle of the Christmas story. We see this Christmas miracle in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Where the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not only will he become the sacrifice and forgive men of their sins, but he also would come and dwell among us. Not only will Jesus save her from our sin, but by coming in the flesh, we once again see the glory of God that left the temple after the exile of Israel. As the glory shone upon the tabernacle, it then shone on the ta- on the temple of Solomon. But again, after the exile, that glory never came back again to earth. But in John chapter 1, we read of these famous words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the, or was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John would write, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus would tell Philip, one of his disciples, when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. (coughs) Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians, we see he is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, just as Moses witnessed the glory of God descending down on the tabernacle and then invited to commune with God, you and I too see the glory of God descend in the ministry of Jesus and then you and I are invited to come and commune with him. The spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears says come and let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus, come to me. Come to me. We're invited into the presence of Christ. So there is much to celebrate this Christmas. Jesus, the Son of God, came in flesh, was born to die for the sins of God's chosen people. Very much like the poor son of David who was born only to die for the sins of his father. But yet that's all it attained. His death was almost futile. It's just a note in scripture. But when Jesus came, he died for God's chosen people. He fulfilled what God required, the perfection that you and I cannot attain. There are many things designed by Satan to distract us from this simple gospel. He has been successful in creating competing idols, gifts, money, seasonal spirits to draw us away from God. He has created a false sense of what peace truly is by preaching a different gospel. The world looks at peace promised by scripture as some type of cheesy, sentimental emotion rather than God reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son. Let me challenge you, do not fall into Satan's trap this year. Focus on that which is life changing and life giving the incarnation of the Son of God who came so that you and I may have life. So the question comes so, how do you and I recapture that true spirit of Christmas? Well, once again, turn to Hebrews 10 if you're still there or turn back. In Hebrews chapter 10, you and I just have to simply follow scripture. Just as Moses was invited to enter the intersanctum of the 10th temp- tabernacle, so you and I have been invited into the presence of a holy God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 tells us, Therefore, the fact that Christ offered himself once and for all, because he has done that, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by a new living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, he tells us that because of this, you and I are to do three things. First, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. I pray here that if you do not know Christ that you would do so today. Would you call out to him? Would you see and repent from your dead works that it is futile? You will never make yourself right with God through trying harder and being better. That's recognizing just as Moses, when he is invited by God into the tabernacle, we can walk boldly, knowing that He's calling us and expecting us and desiring communion and fellowship with us. Would you call on Him today? Secondly, He tells us then to let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who has promised is <coughs> faithful. If you're struggling today, hold fast to the truth that you are one of God's children and that he loves you. That yes, this world is a shaky, scary place. For those of us who have children and grandchildren, we just wonder what in the world will it be like as we th- see things changing so quickly and so dramatically. Be us, hold fast to our confession. And then thirdly, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And you're going to be hearing more about this in the next few weeks as this is our theme for next year, a a desire to disciple each other through relationships, through loving and stirring one another up. I love the, the, I think the King James Version says, provoke one another to good works. Another says, prod one another to good works. As a rancher who has to take electric prod to get the cattle moving, you and I need to use our spiritual prods to encourage and strengthen one another up. He goes on, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So would you draw near? Would you hold fast? And would you consider what God has called you? That's the spirit of Christmas. That's what you and I can do to celebrate Christmas, to, re, to uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, to, to gather Christmas up again. I'd like to give you a word of encouragement. It's one of my favorite verses. It's the greatest Christmas present ever. You'll see it there in Colossians chapter 2 on the monitor. Where Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncertain concision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authority, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This here is the greatest gift that you and I can receive. And this leads to life eternal. You know, it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's sad. I come in this morning, and there's a phone message, and that happens every once in a while. So I'm, I'm listening to this morning, and... And it's a gentleman, I, don't, I didn't catch his name. I don't even know if he left his name. But he asked for me to pray for, her, for him that his drawings would do well and that he would have prosperity and health and wealth for the upcoming year. Thank you for praying for me, and he then hung up. I'm thinking, I have a greater gift than that. Let me share with you a greater gift, a better gift. That's the gift that's worth giving. That's the gift that you have to share. And I encourage you to do that this year. So let me close what God wants us to do today. God wants you to understand that the celebration of the Incarnation should not be tainted with selfish, greedy, covetous thoughts and actions. The Son of God did not come to earth so that you and I could obtain more items that will not last for eternity. God wants you to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh to redeem God's children from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin, and it comes through one who came as a baby. God wants you to desire the gift of salvation and our inheritance in heaven more than the things of this world. So what do you desire? God wants you to take up your cross, deny yourselves, and follow him. Would you do that this morning as we draw near as we hold fast and we consider how to stir one another up. Let me close with this last word so there'll be no mistake. Does this mean that buying, giving, and receiving gifts is sinful and enjoying the Christmas spirit? No, not at all. We do all those things. and We've done them here. But let's keep them in balance, recognizing that Christmas is so much more than what the world has to offer. But it's about the incarnation. It's about one who was born to die for those that do not deserve it, and may we thank God for that. If every head bowed and every head closed, ask Dustin if you would come on up and prepare for our last closing song. I'd ask you just take a moment to pause, to consider, and respond to the Holy Spirit. Are you holding fast, drawing near, and considering? Would you come and celebrate the One who gives us all that we ever truly needed? Father, we come before you and we ask for your grace and mercy. Thank you for such wonderful gifts. We are not deserving of it. But you're rich in your mercy. And for it, Father, we are poor. But yet, Father, with that great exchange of God's uh, obedience and God's penalty and for us to have perfection and acceptance, it is worth any price. Strengthen us. And let us share that gospel. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.